the rest of us, let's turn to Romans chapter 5. And I think this message is appropriate on a number of levels for this morning. We're going to focus on one line in verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we'll see what that means and how it's fitting, even as we think about things now that have happened with Eileen and with Catherine going to be with the Lord this morning. And we're seeing the effects of the fall in this church and in our lives, all of us together, and the sufferings we experience. And I think it, well, I don't think I know, according to what Paul is saying here, it increases the hope we have in the coming glory of God when these things will be no more. Let's read verses 1 through 5. I'll pray and then I'll do my introduction and we'll go into our points. Where he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pause and ask God's blessing on the word preached. Father, we thank you for your truth, your word that is enduring, never changing, always standing. Every time we open our Bibles, it says the same thing. We praise you for that. We praise you for the results of justification that we experience in our lives and that we can boast in. And I pray that even this morning, as we look at your word, you would be building in us hope, a rejoicing, a boasting in hope of that future time when Jesus will return and we will see him and become like him and you will make everything the way it should be. We look forward to that. We pray that this message in part, in some small part from your word, would be used to increase that within our hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember what we're seeing in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1? What Paul is doing, especially in these first five verses, is he is giving us four results of justification, four wonderful results of being justified people. He had been establishing the fact that we're justified by faith, that is declared righteous, forgiven of all our sins. And then he says, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. We are no longer in this status of enmity because of our sin, but we have 
We have peace with him now. We're in right relationship to him. His smiling countenance is upon us. If we go to be in his, if we die right now today, we know that because we're at peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we go to be with him. It's a wonderful truth. It's the first result he talks about. And then we looked at verse 2 last week. Through him, that is Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, through Christ now we have been brought into, we have access into the very presence of God, into fellowship with Him, and we stand before Him now in grace. And we looked at how wonderful that was. That means it began with grace. It didn't take into account our works It's by grace we were brought into it, and it's by grace we continue in it, and it's grace all the way through until we're with Him. We combined these two and said how wonderful the results of this is because it means it can never be taken away from us. The peace with God, the right standing with God, the justified status, all by grace. We stand by grace, never to be taken away from us. It was really a wonderful Thing, But do you remember, these are only for believers. By the way, I was going to mention this last week. He talks about peace with God and he talks about having access to God. We got to be sure that when we are talking to unbelievers, that we're not beelining so quickly to assure them of God's love for them. That might sound strange to you, but it's true. You can miscommunicate something. If somebody believes, well, God loves me, so what's the problem? Well, if they're not in Christ, there's a big problem, isn't there? They're not under His grace. They're under His wrath. They don't have peace with Him. As a matter of fact, they're at enmity with Him. And they need to be rescued from that. The only way they can be rescued is if they turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. We talk about God's love demonstrated, as Paul will talk about, in this way that he gave his only son. It was demonstrated in this way. He gave his son so whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But they need to understand that they're not right with God, that they don't have these effects of justification. It's only for us. And then he gets into this next phrase, and this is where I just want to park the car this morning and focus on this. He says, we rejoice in hope, and we rejoice in hope of this, the glory of God. Now, notice a couple of things here, okay? The first two that we looked at, these first two results, justification, Paul framed them like this. This is something you have. So we have peace with God. We have access to God. And in this grace in which we stand. And now he frames these two like this. This is something we do. This is something Christians do. Well, what do they do? What do justified Christians do? Well, they do these two things. They rejoice in hope of the glory of God and they even rejoice in their sufferings. This is just what, this is one of the results of justification that is something that we ourselves are doing. We are rejoicing in hope of the glory of God and we are even rejoicing 
in our sufferings. In other words, we could put it this way. These are right responses to justification. Now, it's interesting how he uses this word rejoice. This translation that our translators have put here, they use the word rejoice. It's used three times in this chapter, verses 2, 3, and 11. But it was also used back in chapter 2 twice, and it was translated a little differently. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because all the other uses of this word in our translation as they are translated in the rest of the New Testament, are not translated as rejoice. They're actually translated as what the word most basically means, and that is boast or to boast. Sometimes even used negatively, like if somebody is boasting in themselves or boasting in their accomplishments or boasting in their gifts or boasting in their descendancy from Abraham. They're proud of it. They're taking pride in it. The New American Standard Bible uses the translation exalt. The old King James Version uses glory. When you glory in something, you exalt in that thing, you boast in it, you, yes, rejoice in it with confidence. It's a strong word to be used here of what he's doing. It is a confident, joy-filled boasting in something. And in this case, it is in hope of the glory of God and even in our sufferings. You know, true, Christian, true Christianity isn't just, you know, things that we affirm or things that we teach or things that we you know, say we believe. It's not just a set of facts. What Paul is showing here is that this is something, these are things, yes, we know and we confess as statements of fact and this is our theology, but it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? We rejoice in these things. It comes from the inside. These are the things that we are boasting in, we're exalting in, we're glorying in these truths. We're not just indifferent to them. They're not just a set of things that we believe and they don't affect us at all. These affect us from the inside. They cause us now to glory in them. It's a confident, joy-filled boasting. And notice these are not commands. These are not commands. Paul is putting these forth just as simple statements of fact. What he's saying essentially is this, wherever you find justified people, you're going to know it because what you're going to find them doing are these two things. They're going to be glorying in the hope of glory and they are going to be glorying even in their sufferings, knowing what God's doing in it. You see that? You find a group of people like ours, like this group right here, this church, this gathering, the justified people in here, this is what we do, right? We boast in it. We rejoice in these things. We glory in them. That's what he's saying. He's not commanding us to do a thing. He's saying these are just the, the right responses of what God has done for us and in us. This is just what we do. Now that word hope, he says we rejoice in hope. We better make sure we understand what he means here. What is hope in the New Testament? Because we use that word in a completely different way than what Paul intends that word to be used, okay? We use the word hope 
in everyday conversation, almost, right? In just the sense of wishful thinking, right? I hope this happens or I hope that doesn't happen, right? Um, You know, if you're a hunter, you're like, I hope right now that deer or elk is just getting prepared for me to blast into eternity, into nothingness, and completely slaughter him and bring him home. You're hoping, but you can't be too confident because you don't know. Sometimes you get skunked. Some of you maybe are participating in that. Some of the guys in here I know have a fantasy football league going on right now, and they're looking at that, and you're saying, man, I hope today, because Sunday's a big day, for football, I hope today my team's doing well. And as your pastor, I'm hoping you're not checking the stats right now. I'm hoping you're paying attention. But let's be honest, both of us can't be that confident about it, right? It's kind of just wishful thinking. But when the New Testament uses the word hope, and especially in this context, it is much different than that, friends. This is what a basic definition of this word could be. Listen to every part of it. A confident expectation of future good. Confident now expectation of future good. It's not wishful thinking. It's knowing for certain and waiting with expectancy excitedly waiting for this thing to happen that you are sure, you're confident about it, there's no doubt in your mind this is going to happen. That's what it is. That's what hope is in the New Testament. It's something we can be very sure of to the point that we go around, friends, boasting in it. We boast in it. We boast in this hope of the glory of God. We're so confident it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen, so we boast in it. And the glory of God, well, what is that? Let's wrap our minds around that because we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God that we're confidently anticipating and rejoicing in? You know, the glory of God could be summarized like this. It is the sum of all his magnificent being. If you're in the Sunday night theology class, we've been talking about the essence or the being of God, his godness, what makes God God, his divine essence and being. And we think about his glory as the Unlimited sum of all of that is his glory, his radiance of his being. It's something he has right now, and it's unchangeable. God's glory is what he has, and it can never be diminished or added to. It is fully and wonderfully and mind boggling, always what it is, and yet. We can't see it. Now, there is a place that God created in which right now His glory is uniquely manifested. And that place is called heaven. 
That is where Christ is in his glorified state. And that is where Catherine is right now. Seeing that glory and experiencing it. But because we are here, we can see things that bring glory to God and manifest His glory like creation or a changed life and character in the new birth. We see things that bring glory to God, but we cannot see the expression of God's glory that is in heaven. But the hope of the glory of God is that one day we will. When Christ returns, he will return glorified. Matter of fact, did you know in John 17, Jesus prayed for the disciples and he said, Father, I wish that they could be with me where I am and see my glory. He loves us And when you love someone, you love to see them happy and joyful. And he knows that when they see my glory, when it's revealed, when they see the glory of God revealed, they are going to experience the fullness of joy as though they've never experienced. You ever watched a loved one enjoy something? Like you, you provided it for them or you just, you just enjoy watching them enjoy this. That's Christ's heart for us. He knows what it is and what it will be. He knows the effect it's going to have in our hearts and minds and souls to see his glory and to be glorified with him and to be in him with it uh, forever. He knows the effect. He will enjoy seeing our enjoyment of this glory. It is the glory that is going to be revealed in the future when Christ returns, brings the glory to this earth, and glorifies the earth as it's supposed to be. Now, Paul's going to return to this topic, but I want to show it to you this morning. Look at Romans 8. He's going to return to it in Romans chapter 8. And when we get to that, we'll spend some time with it. But look at verse 18 of Romans 8. Notice if you have one of the Pew Bibles or probably any English Standard Version, what's the heading over verse 18? Future glory, right? That's our hope. There it is right there. You could almost just put, if you could mark in it, maybe not in our Pew Bibles, but if you've got your own, you mark. Our hope, this is it. A future glory. Now listen to what he says here, begin verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now just press pause, and I'm going to do this throughout this passage. So read a little bit, and I'll ask us to pause and think about what he's saying. First of all, notice, because he's doing the same thing in chapter 5, that we'll look at next week. He's connecting our sufferings to the glory and vice versa. That's very essential because what Paul knows and had experienced in his own life is that this life would be filled with suffering. There's no way around it. 
Believers, unbelievers like everyone, they will suffer. This world is filled with suffering. But what Paul is holding out to the believers is this. Listen, that glory that, that you're hoping in and you're boasting in right now, it's not even worth comparing. The sufferings aren't worth comparing to it. So it wouldn't matter the extent to which you would suffer here in the very brief period of time that you're on this earth. It isn't as though when you're in the glory and it's revealed, you're going to begrudge any of it. It's not even worth comparing. So don't try to do it, right? That's what he's saying. So much far beyond us. And notice this, that it's with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what I was talking about earlier. There's a coming glory. It's going to be revealed. It's hidden now, but you're going to see it and you're going to experience it. That's what he's talking about. Verse 19 for, and now he's going to broaden it out, not just to believers or to me or you individually, he's going to broaden it out to creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected, uh, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All right, let's pause here. So first he's going to start with all of creation. And in this creation that we live in, it has been, it's under the curse. Do you remember the, the Genesis 3? That as soon as the fall and sin enter the world, the creation itself is under the curse of God because of sin. And this is why you have so much suffering and so much devastation throughout the world. You can't, you can't escape it. You see it everywhere. We just had massive, uh, what's that called? The Hif Florida. Hurricane, we have hurricanes. We don't have mere injunction, thankfully. But hurricanes, you see famines and droughts. You see earthquakes. You see uh, tornadoes, natural disasters. You have diseases that flow through humanity. We look around, we see it everywhere. And Paul's saying even the creation right now, the creation itself is groaning under this. It's waiting, it's waiting itself for the revealing of the glory of God to come to it. It knows almost, he's personifying creation, so to speak, that it will be set free now from this bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's God's intention to make all things as they are supposed to be, to really, as Paul explains it, Bring together all things in Jesus Christ, including the creation, and make it as it's supposed to be. When you're seeing the suffering of this world and, and you're seeing even the creation itself groaning, just be thinking, listen, this isn't how it's supposed to be. When people say, if God is good, why does he allow so much suffering in the world? Don't you blame God for the suffering of this world. That was brought about from human beings. We, through our sin, brought the suffering into the world. When God created this world, it was very good, had no suffering for his creatures or creation. 
It is we ourselves who bear the blame and bear it alone for all the suffering of this world. And it is God in his goodness and undeserved grace to a sin-filled world that he has a plan to glorify it all once again, you see, and bring it to creation or bring it to completion. That is the glory of God that even the creation is waiting for. But then he says in verse 23, listen, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's a key phrase there, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, and by that in this case he means this, the redemption of our bodies. That is, we, because we have the Spirit in us, we have the hope of future glory of God being revealed. We know how good it's going to be. We ourselves have the Spirit, so we understand how our sin ruins everything. We ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit, so we understand that our decaying bodies our dying bodies, the pain and suffering that goes with it is not how it's supposed to be. So we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then notice verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. From the moment you trusted in Christ, from the moment you were saved from your sins, this hope became yours. Part of the gospel is that not just, listen, the gospel is not just that you have your sins forgiven and don't, get to, don't go to hell. It's such a shallow view of the gospel. The gospel comes with the hope of the glory of God. You get God in His glory and you get glorified and you live on the glorified creation, you see. It's so much more than I just don't want to go to hell when I die. A person who truly has this hope is boasting in the fact not only that, no, I'm not going to hell because my sins have been forgiven, but more than that, I get the glory of God forever. That's the longing of the heart that we are groaning for now. That is what the Spirit is producing in us as we eagerly wait for the return of Christ, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Or the word, same word he uses in chapter 5 that we'll look at next week, endurance. We wait for it with endurance as we anticipate this glory that is coming to us. When God will make all things as they should be, including me and you. Friends, are you tired of the suffering? Of the pain and the sorrow? Are you tired of the sin that so easily besets you and robs you of peace and joy? Are you tired of the wickedness of this world? Of your own failing body? All of that is designed by God to produce in you hope for 
the world to come. You know, Revelation 21 is another passage that talks about our future hope in verses 3 and 4. I think I have a slide for that. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Remember what I told you about the hope of glory? It's more than just getting out of hell. It's being with God forever. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. All of this suffering is now. But there's coming a time when it will be the former things. It will have passed away and in the new heavens and new earth and in the glory of God, these things will be no more. That's the hope. That's why Paul says in chapter eight when he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's because all of this suffering is for now, not then. You know, I think that's really what Paul means in this a very misunderstood verse Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called to his, according to his purpose. And we use that verse and we say, that means that everything in our lives just works together for good in the sense that it'll pan out, right? Don't worry, this will be okay. This will work out. That's not at all what he means. What he means is that all things, including the suffering and the pain and the sorrow, are going to work together for this one good purpose, that you're going to be conformed to the image of a son when you're glorified with him and you're on your way to eternity. That's what that means. And he uses it, as we'll see next week, even our sufferings. He is wonderfully using our sufferings to get us to glory. None of them are wasted. So this is the hope of glory that we anticipate. And now what I want to do in our closing few minutes, I want to transition. We rejoice or we boast or we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And now I want to apply that for just a few minutes. This hope of the glory of God is what we as Christians are to be living for now. In other words, if you have this hope, it sets your life on a new trajectory that doesn't then look like everyone else's life. You see what I mean? It actually sets you on this new trajectory now so that justified people's lives don't look like unjustified people's lives. Why? Because we are living, we are boasting in this confident expectation of future good. That changes everything for us. The trajectory of our lives change because of this hope of glory. Now, in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul used Abraham as an example of justifying, saving faith, and the author of Hebrews does the same thing. And I'm going to put these up on the screen. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. Listen to this. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. But catch this, he lived in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. When I go camping, I might use a tent, but I don't use it at my house. In my house, I'm home. He lived in this world as though it wasn't what? His home. Why? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You see that? He's looking forward. He had hope in the glory of God to come, something far better than this land here. Verses 13 and 14, Hebrews 11, he goes on, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, people who speak like this, people who, who boast with their mouths, who rejoice with their mouths in hope of the glory of God, people who speak like that, right? Make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And this isn't it. Abraham lived his life by faith in hope of the glory of God and it affected the way he lived here. And it should do the same with us. That's why the author to the Hebrews is putting him forth as an example again. Look at how he lived with the faith he had. Look at, as a result of being justified by God, look at what he did. He didn't live for the here and now. He lived for the time to come. We live now as pilgrims on our way to the celestial city. That's why we read Pilgrim's Progress, right? We're supposed to see ourselves in Christian. As he turns his back on the city of destruction and makes his way to the celestial city. Anybody like the teaching of Jesus? Anybody here like Jesus' teaching since we're Christians and stuff? Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. These are just some practical applications. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or how about Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? In other words, the daily concerns of life that we're so busy about, so anxious for. He says, verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things. That's the way unjustified people live. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first as your priority the kingdom of God and the glory of God that will come with it and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Or how about Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21? Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. 
For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I will have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's the problem, Christian, with all of us. There are times in our lives when there isn't much boasting in hope of the glory of God or much eager anticipation of the revealed glory, not much temporary, pilgrim-like mindset living because we are too much at home here. We slip into daily patterns of life and thinking that are fixated on the present time with very little thought of the eternal future to come in the glory of God. So then there isn't much boasting in the future hope of glory. Or as John says in 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, here's our hope, we shall be like him, glorified, right? Because we shall see him in his glory as he is. And listen to this, and everyone who thus hopes in himself, or has this hopes in him, in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see how the apostles just take this and they apply it directly? You know that when Christ comes, it's in the fullness of glory and purity and righteousness. And Paul says, anyone who has that hope is here now. Or John says, everyone who has that hope is here now, purifying himself just as he is pure. What would your daily life look like if each day you were truly rejoicing in hope of the glory of God? I guess that's what I'm putting out to all of us, including myself. What would my life look like today, tomorrow, if my boast was in hope, future, confident expectation of future good in the glory of God? And I was truly living for that time. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and I'll just leave us with these verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. That's what we would be doing first and foremost, right? <clears throat> Seeking the things that are above in glory. Christ, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above. Not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life. Didn't we just sing that earlier? Jesus is my life. And if Jesus is our life, well, aren't, will we not be seeking the things that pertain to Him? Will we not be setting our mind on eternal things, looking forward anxiously to His appearing because when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Friends, are you looking forward to the glory of God? 
my words can't do justice to how wonderful it's going to be. And for all justified people, it is ours to the extent that God says, boast in this now. Boast in this. Be known for your boasting, for your rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, as always, for your word. We pray that you would take it and apply it to our hearts and make us who we are to be, especially in this context, Lord, of rejoicing in hope. We thank you for the hope we have now in Christ that it is guaranteed, secured for us by him. And we pray that you would, that our hope would no longer be hope because Jesus appears. We pray for his coming soon. We ask this in his name. Amen.